0: Well, this morning I have been assigned the task of speaking to you of a subject that is profound and at the same time difficult because it has to do with the eternal decree of God. And I want to give a word of caution in, in, in touching these subjects, because this requires humility from the learner, because as we enter into the examining of the doctrines of grace and the depths of the wisdom of God, we will encounter that sometimes the wisdom of God and his divine justice does not, does not always square with what we deem just. So it is important for us to understand that we must not assign human categories and definitions to the person of God. What I'm trying to say is that we must endeavor to understand God in the manner and fashion that God has revealed himself in Holy Scripture. This is very important for us to have in mind as we go through these uh, studies. We are studying the London Baptist Confession of Faith. In, uh, in passing through that, I want to clarify and exhort, exhort us to do, to do this. We must understand that uh, a confession of faith, it is important because it serves to distinguish error from truth by setting forth the cardinal doctrines of the Bible in their proper context. I want to remind us that the scriptures themselves Caution and warns the believers to be discerning. You know, you have heard, I have heard believers say many times, Well, you know, I like that church because they preach from this book and they grab the Bible and show it to you. Now, I want to say that that is indeed right. But I want us not to be naive and understand that it's not only about preaching from the book, but also about preaching correctly and accurately from the book. We remember that episode, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Satan comes to Christ, and he uses the book, he uses the book to establish his point. Nevertheless, twisting the scripture, but he used the book. So it is important for us to understand that it's not just a matter of using the book, of preaching the book, but it's also needful to preach the book in a, in its proper context, so that we may understand what is being said in the right way. This is most important for for us. Also, it reminds us of the uh, the, the words of the apostle Peter in his letter, his second letter to the dispersion. He said that unstable people twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Right, So it is not only necessary to preach from the book, but also to understand the book of Ryan. So that's why it's important, therefore, that we have a confession of faith, because it sets forth the doctrines in their proper context. Now, I want to give a word of warning. I know that many of you have seen changes in this church, and... You might wonder what's happening. This is a great opportunity for you to understand what is happening because what what this confession would do for you is that it's setting forth what your pastors believe and teach. And that gives you the opportunity to test what you're being taught from the pulpit against the greed of Scripture. So it is very important because as the confession progresses, you will be able to see and understand why is the pastor taking this position, or why is the pastor preaching this way. This will set forth an opportunity for you to ask questions, to come to 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 your pastors and ask them, or well, what? Okay, now I see why you're saying this. Now I see why you're preaching this way. Now understand this. Well, let's talk about this. So perk up your ears, because what you what you will be hearing in the in the following weeks is the core doctrines. That the church embraces. So, reminder, therefore, pay attention, be discerning. And remember, a confession of faith is necessary. Every church has a confession of faith. Some of them do not acknowledge them, or some of them do not know they have them. Even if they say they don't, that is their confession of faith. So, what we're doing is we're setting forth what we believe and teach. Pay attention to that. Now, that being said, uh, we're gonna be touching today the divine decree. Now, this follows, as we see in the progress of the confession, we saw how it begins with the established of the authority, establishment of the authority, which is scripture, the word of God, infallible, sufficient, and inerrant, inspired, Rule of faith, which is the word of God. Against this grid, against this canon, every single thing must be measured. It has been said from the Reformation, they coined, there's a, a Latin phrase for everything in, in, in the Reformation, they said that the Bible was a norma, norma, et sin normativa. Means that the Bible is the norm of norms, and without norms and peers." That is to say that there is no other higher authority, there is nothing that we can measure the Bible by, that when we read a book, we are the critics of that book. But when we read the Bible, we become the critic Key: The Bible criticizes us. So we see that confession begins with that, the establishment of authority, and then he moves to the person of God, who is the source of that authority. We saw that last, last week our pastor was talking about the Holy Trinity, about the person of God, and now the confession begins to move to the divine decree. To the divine decree. Now, as we move to the divine decree, we must understand that divine decree touches in a uh, branch of theology. If you look at your uh, study guides, I give you some definitions of the terminologies that we will be using today. For example, in the second definition, you see the theology proper. Now, theology proper is the branch of theology that deals with the person and attributes of God. Now, I hear Christians say, well, why do we have to be bothering with all this theology? I and mean, what I know is I love Jesus. You know? But beloved, you know that, that is a simplistic way to see that. You know why? Because our Lord Jesus said this. Listen, He said this. And this is eternal life. He said, That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. So what is Jesus telling us in this passage? That eternal life consists, that heaven is all about knowing the person of God. So with that in mind, I want to, before we plunge into this doctrine, I want to give us a biblical definition of this doctrine. So if you look at... A biblical definition of the divine decree, if you see in the study guide, says the divine decree is the expression of the immutable will and purpose of God, We shall not suffer hindrance or frustration, but it shall come to pass in the precise manner that God has purpose and ordained. So, when I say the divine decree, that is what is in mind. That is what I'm talking about. That is what I have in mind. That's what the confession has in mind when we're we'll talking about the divine decree. Uh, all of you have a confession, okay? Well, we have more available if you if you want to grab one. I um, I will be covering just the first and second paragraph of this confession. I mean, I'm sorry this article but I will suggest that you read it and read the text proof that there are in the confession uh, thoroughly so you can uh, test all things by the grid of the counsel of Scripture. So now that being said before I go further let me ask another question. how many of you believe that God is almighty? everybody God is sovereign? Only potent, that means that he can do everything he wants. Everybody agree? All right. As we progress this, we will be putting that to the test. So let us read what the first paragraph says. It says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, All things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath he fellowship with any therein. Nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. But rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. That's a mouthful. It's a lot there. So let's, let's take this by parts. The first thing we see here is that God's decree, as you can see in the study God, is original. And what does that mean? What is, what does it mean that God's decree is original? This has to do with the origin of the decree. If you pay attention to study guys here, I put the definitions in regards to this. Opera at intra. Opera at intra. This has to do with the internal works and counsel of the Godhead. That is the interaction of God the trying the God, the internal counsels of the Godhead. So this means that the decree stems from God. That's what that means. It means that the decree stems from God, that the source of the decree, as we read in the definition, the decree is the expression that follows the will of God. Okay? Now why is it important for us to place the decree, the origin of the decree in God? We will see that as we go, but well, just in passing through the reason is because we understand that the decree is the expression of the will of God, therefore everything that follows happens because of the decree. That the decree is not reactive, but it is proactive. It is the expression of the will of God. It is the reason of everything. Now, if you go with me to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Now I want to draw our attention to the last sentence. According to what the Scripture is telling us, according to what the Apostle Paul is telling us in this passage, everything that has to do with the election, the blessings of which He is given praises to God about everything stems from what? According to the text. What is the source of all these things? The source of the blessing, the source of the predestination, the source of the election. What is the source? What is the idea? Well, where did, what did it came from, according to the text? Exactly, right? It says that it is according to the counsel of his will. Right? It says that it is according to the purpose of His will. Now what does that tell us? That shows to us intentionality. That shows to us purpose. Now that's another thing that, uh, in the, in the last definition I gave you in the study guide, you will see the word teleology. That is a doctrine that deals with the purpose of God. Now that is important for us to grasp. Because this tells us that. God has a purpose. And that nothing happens. By chance. Right? So it is important for us that we understand. These things. In regards of the divine decree. And the character of God. Now let us pay attention to verse 11. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verse 11 other people coming Already? okay Ephesians 1 11 listen to what it says and in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will now, I want to draw to our attention uh, to our attention the word all things, panta as a word in the Greek. It is a universal, all inclusive. So how many things does it say here that God works according to his purpose and will? How many things? A few things, some things, all things. Right? Since my son is uh, answering questions, let me ask you this question. How does God execute His decrees? No. God executes His decrees in the work of creation and providence. Okay, that's good. God executes His decrees in the works of creation and providence. Now, this brings us if you want to have a grid on, on, on the divine decree, let me put it this way. The divine decree is executed In three distinct dimensions. Creation, providence, and redemption. That covers it all. Creation, providence, and redemption. Now let let us, uh, speaking of working all things, you know, let us go to the, uh, chapter 11 the book of Romans. Here we see that the apostles flows in doxology, that means in giving glory to God. Now in the context of the book, the question is planted in chapter 9 when the apostle says, it is not like the word of God has fed. It's in regards of the rejection of the Messiah by the Jewish people. Now, the background to that statement, we find it in verse uh, chapter 8. And begin, beginning in verse 28, listen, uh, excuse me, chapter 11 at this point. So this is a culmination. This is the conclusion of the apostle as he moves on in his dissertation in the epistle to the Romans. He says this, Romans chapter 11, verse 33, and on forward, he says, all oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how scurnable, unfathomable, are His ways. Now, passing through here, I want to bring something to our attention and clarify this. Here is by no means the Apostle saying that the things of God, the things of God are veiled in the sense that, that we cannot understand what God is doing or what God wants to do and he has obeyed. Is not saying that no one can understand God. It's not what the Apostle is saying. But this has to do with profundity. You know, like Saint Augustine said in regards to the thing, he says that he could see the dead but he cannot plunge it. So there are things of God that are so profound that our minds can only go so far. But nevertheless, they are true, and they and they do stand. There are people who tend to deny attributes of God only on the basis of not being able to fully understand them. You understand that? One of the doctrines that is denying In that sense, it's the darkening of divine election and predestination. Many believers deny it because they cannot understand it fully. You know what I mean? But that is not a good base for denial of the (coughs) truth. We must be humble enough to acknowledge our limitations. Nevertheless, this is what the Scripture teaches to us. So, the Apostle said that his ways are beyond... Being fathomed. That has the idea of profundity. A fathom was a death mark used by the sailors. A fathom, you know, deep. He says that we will not exhaust the wisdom of God. Nevertheless, he has talked about these things. you read from chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, he's talking about the divine decree in divine election. So he says that according to the counsel of his will, he has on this, now he says, how inscrutable are his ways. Verse 34, He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? And that's important for us to understand, because the objection is what? What is the objection to these things? That's not fair. Right? Now, what is expressed when we say, that's not fair? We're expressing disagreement. This does not square with my thinking. Right? That's why we gave the warning at the beginning of the class that we must be humble enough and understand That we must endeavor to know God, not as we think God is, but as he has revealed himself in Holy Scripture. So, the apostle says, who has been his counselor? Who can correct God? Right? Now, uh, we must pay attention to this. This is very important, you see. Paul attributes the reality of the divine decree in election to the mind and counsel of the Lord. Alright, he says, for who has been his counselor? So what is Paul saying to us here? He's saying, this is according to what God has said. This is according to his will and purpose. That's why he's giving him glory. He says, all oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. Right? It is important for us to see this. Now at verse 35, he says, Oh, who he says, or who has given him a gift that he may be repaid? Right? What, what is Paul saying to us here? Supremacy. Absolute supremacy. What he's telling to us is God is not indebted to any man. Right, it's always good for us to understand God, like John Calvin said. He said that, unless we know God, we cannot know ourselves. Unless we have ascended the Mount Everest of His Holiness, we cannot come down to know ourselves in the true, in the true light of divine wisdom. And so, what Paul is saying to us is, who are you? To judge God. Right? Now verse 36 it says, For for him, and through him, and to him, are all things. How many things are they? Uh, Some things. A few things. Only the good things. Or all things. Notice... The testimony of scripture does not shy from ascribing to God's supreme sovereignty over all things. And yes, that includes bad things too. And he says to him, be glory forever. Amen. Alright. We can all say amen. Now, this culmination of the Apostle's doctrinal dissertation in regards of God's sovereignty has to do with His divine decree and how God in His divine providence works all things for our good in His glory. If you go with me right quick to Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. Now, in the context of this chapter, we see that the Apostle in chapter 7 of his battle with the flesh that he wishes to do good and the good that he wishes to do is hindered because there is another law at work in the members of his body. So he says, All oh, wretched man that I am who can free me from this body of death. Right? And then he switch over to uh, chapter 8 and he says, But there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right, and he continues to talk of these things and how the Spirit intercedes for us in groanings and things that are sometimes not comprehensible for us. Then we come to verse twenty-eight and listen to what he says. Now he says, and we know that for those who love God, God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now that is important for us. Now, in this verse, is what we call the comprehension of the decree. Because it's a comprehensive statement. Where the apostles are telling us that God works all things for good. Now, there's a distinction right there. Did you see it? There is a uh, discriminating clause there. In order for you to say God works all things for the good and his glory, and if you want to include it yourselves, there there is a classification that must be met, which is what? Huh? For those who love God. You have to meet, meet the criteria, right? Now Many have used this passage to say, "Well, you see, here it says very good that God only works things for good, and all things for good only for those who love Him. The rest He kind of wants to have control, but you know He's limited by their will." That's what it says. Because we already read in Ephesians that now that it's given a all-inclusive all, right? All things God is in control and ordained by. But in this specific passage, is speaking about. He's the up, He's speaking about those who love him. He works all things together for their good. According to what? Huh? According to his purpose. Now listen to what it says in verse 39. It says, For those whom he foreknew, now, I want to pass here, and before I go to what is known as the golden chain, I want to define what foreknowledge here means. There is something called in theology, it's called the Christian view. Uh, that's a Wesleyan-Armenianism. Wesleyan what that means is that what is understood by this is this. That God, in His omniscience, see the future... He sees down the corridors of time, and he can see that Brother Phil will say yes to him, and based upon that decision that he foresees Brother uh, Phil do, or make, then he chooses Brother Phil. Okay? So God only chooses those who he sees choosing him first. So that will make the divine decree, what? Contingent, contingent, Upon what God sees the creature do. Yes. It also says that the all-knowing, perfect God learns something. Correct. Like he didn't know. now, Now he knows. Now he's got Jesus. Precisely. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that flies in the face of the sovereignty and omniscience of God. Because now we're implying that there was a point in time when God did not know something. And he based his decision upon the creation. That makes God subject to His creation. Okay, so what is meant for foreknowledge here? The Greek word is "prognosko." It's a very interesting word. The, the prefix "pro" means before, right? We know this, right? Pro, Prototype before the word "gnosko" is the word uh, in the Greek that means knowledge. When put together, means this: a pre intimate knowledge. Not of, but in the subject. Like I know my wife. You understand that? Like Adam, in the scripture we read that he knew his wife. Eve. is an intimate knowledge. It's not a knowledge about, but a knowledge of the person. It means a relationship. Like I know my son. So. According to this knowledge. Listen to what it says. For those who he foreknew. He predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he may be the firstborn. Among many brothers. And those whom he predestined. He also called. And those whom he called. He also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of those are present Listen, this is a chain for knowledge. Stemming from, for knowledge, we have predestination. Stemming from predestination, we have justification. And stemming from justification, we have what? Glorification. So, all things proceed from the internal counsel of the Godhead. Okay? All things proceed from the internal counsel of the Godhead. Now, let us see the second. And by all means, this list I'm giving you is not exhaustive. I'm just highlighting the things that I consider to be at least doable and relevant to to for, for, for this time. Now, second point, the decree is eternal. The decree is eternal. Now, what does that mean? The decree is eternal. Let us go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, and let's, let's see what it says. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, I mean, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 4. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, we find a lot of things in this passage, in this this verse, but I want to ask us a question. When was this election took place? according to the text huh before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. correct now what does that means what is what is the author telling us here and why is it why is it important it is important because this tells us that when god decided to save you was not a decision based upon anything you had done or would do or because you added any value to God or because God was attracted to you in any shape, way or form his decision was by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will Freely and unchangeably. So that means that if you are in Christ. It's out of his his exclusive. Good pleasure. That he. He made you. For his glory. takes up. He made you redeemable. Not comprehend. Your sin. That your sin serves a purpose. It is going. If you go to me to Isaiah 46, verse 8 through 10. Now, this is, uh, for those who study theology, this is the verse of verses. For this doctrine, okay, you find yourself debating on Facebook. You know, I know you do. Armenianism. This is the graveyard of Armenianism. Okay, what is Armenianism? Is a theology that says that God only saves those who say yes to Him. In a nutshell. Alright. Isaiah 46, verse 8 to 10. Actually, verse 8 through 11. Verse 8 8 through 11. He says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God. And there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the men of my own counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Very. Very thorough, right? Explicit. Now, in this passage, I want to draw attention to this thing. Verse 10, it says that God is declaring things. He says that He declares the end from the beginning. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? What is, that? what is the after us about God in this passage? Right, how many of you have heard that expression? I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. How many, how many of you have heard that? All of us have, right? That's from the book of Revelation. Not Revelation. The Alpha is the first letter of the Greek. Uh, Kone Greek, New Testament Greek. And the Omega is the last word. So, what that means is that from the beginning to the end is sovereign. Absolutely sovereign. So, what this text is telling us is that God declares the beginning from the end. And everything that is in between. This text is subscribing total and supreme uh, total supremacy to God's sovereignty over all things, whether they're good or they're bad? Right. Now I'm begging the question, and we we'll, we will tackle that as we go right quick. Now he says that in verse eleven, he says that he will bring it to pass. He says. I have purpose, and I will do it. Now, what does that tell us? Just let us take the text by itself and pay attention to what it says. And this in this passage is talking about intentionality. Is that theology, as you see it in the study guide of the Telos, the purpose of God? And that's why we said in our definition that the divine decree is the expression of the immutable. Will and purpose of God, we shall not suffer hindrance and will not be frustrated. That's very important for us to understand. So it is supremely important, it is supremely important to understand that decree, that the decree is eternal because this helps us to know that God's decree is not reactive, but rather it is based on his own purpose. This is in alignment with the nature of God. Who declares in Holy Scripture that He is only potent and all sufficient? Now, this is important for us. Now, I want to make a distinction right quick, just pass it through here. The decree is eternal, but it is not eternal as God is eternal. Okay? The decree is eternal, that is, it takes place in eternity past. But the decree is not eternal as God is eternal. And here's one more thing. The decree is not necessary. The decree is not necessary. Now why is that? Because as we saw last week, we saw that God in the triumph harmony of the Godhead, God was fully satisfied and content with Himself before the creation of the world and the universe. That He did not need us, He does not need us, it wasn't because God was lonely that He created us, He created the universe. But even the act of creation is an act of grace. The greater thing, the most good thing, the most wonderful thing that God can do for us is to allow us for us to know Him. So the decree is not necessary and it is not eternal as God is eternal. Now, last point. I'm gonna rush through this so I can give you a practical definition of all these things from scripture so that you can grasp this organically, not just in theory or in doctrine, but also see it take place in scripture. Uh, the decree is immutable. The decree is immutable and efficacious. The decree is immutable and efficacious. If you go with me right quick to Isaiah 14, chapter chapter 14, verse 24. Isaiah 14, verse 24. Now, here we find one of the most wonderful and succinct statements in regards to the sovereignty of God and His divine decree and purpose. I want to remind us that we must exercise humility in regards to Scripture, because when study studying the attributes of God and His decrees, this requires a measure of humility for us to submit to Holy Scripture, even though when what we are reading is hurtful or seems to unsettled. Our own sensibilities. Isaiah 14.24 says. The Lord of hosts has sworn. Now. What does this mean? It means that God has taken an oath. Now the question here is this. If God has taken an oath. To whom has he taken an oath? And has he the power to keep his oath? That's really the question. To whom has God taken the oath? And has he the power to keep his word? That is the question before us today. He says, the Lord of hosts has sworn. As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purpose, so shall extend. Now what are we what are we reading here? There is a fixation. There is a definite purpose. There is a definite intentionality. There is a plan. Now this is important for us. Because you see, when we, many Christians fall into error because, again, we assign human definitions and categories to the person of God. For example, in touching just His divine providence and how things happen, sometimes we tend to think of God as God. You know, I remember when my boys were learning how to walk and I was always behind them and I was reacting to whatever movement they were doing, therefore we think of God in the same terms. You know, God is walking behind us and and reacting to our decisions, hoping that we make the right decisions, dropping hints, doing this, doing that, to move us in such a way. But this is not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is sovereign, even over our bad decisions. Many of you can look back in your lives and look upon these thinkers you made, And say, how God overcame those things and used them for your good. Many of you would not be the person who you are today were not for all the troubles and sufferings you were and passed through because of your stubbornness and foolishness. But God not approving, of course, nevertheless working in spite of you. Again, another another passage. Proverbs 19.21. Let me rush through so we can go... uh, Get through this. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of men. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Right? I like that one. You know. Many are the plans in the mind of men. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Now, as we progress through this, we begin to see something very interesting here. If you look at your definitions of doctrine, the last, the, the, the last one to the last definition says, the doctrine of concurrence. Now, this is a, a great, great, great doctrine to study, <clears throat> The doctrine of concurrence means that there is two or more individuals or things happening at the same time. As we just saw in this verse, in this passage, we see the mind of men, we see the freedom of choice of men interacting and being dominated and overcome by the will of God. This is very important for us to see. One more. Psalm one fifteen, verse three. This is a short one, but it's a neat one. Our God is in the heavens and He does all things He pleases. Our God is in the heavens and He does all things. He now, from I say again, I just read verse 11, right quick from chapter 46. He says, "Calling the bird of prey from the east, the men of my council from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it." Now, in that passage, we see the means. Because he's talking about Cyrus, the King Cyrus, who God was going to use to bring his people back to the promised land after the Babylonian exile. Now there we see the doctrine of preference, we see the will of God, the supremacy of God, working through the agency of the man. Right? So, if we are to understand God's decree of right, we must understand that we cannot understand it apart from considering His nature. <clears throat> if we are to understand the decree of God, we cannot understand it, understand it apart from understanding the nature of Him who has decreed. Because it has to do it, it's tied back to his own nations, to his attributes. All right, now let me deal with the practical part of this real quick. Now in front of us, now, uh, I said I was begging the question. There's two positions theologically that, in the light of all that we have seen, in the light of that God has declared himself from all the time, by the most wise and holy council of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass, the last In the light of that, there have been two, two objections to this. The first objection is what we call a rigid determinism. This goes along the lines. Uh, of this, well if this is true, then God is a tyrant, he's a divine puppeteer, we're just robots, why evangelize, why even pray, if God has already determined whatever, whatever will happen, and in this case, in the side of the Calvinists, it's called hyper-Calvinism, what dimension of that is, if even sanctification, why even worry, if God wants me to be holy, he will make me holy, So there's this brittle, rigid determinism where everything is fixed. Even that chair where you just sit right there, brother. God has determined that you were going to sit on that chair. That's the rigid determinism that I'm talking about. Now the other objection, or caricature of this, is what is called open deism. What is that? That is God, if God has ordained all that come to pass, then that would mean that God is the author of sin. So, here comes the open thesis. The rescue of God. And so, in order to be able to exonerate God, this view says that God only reacts to what He sees the creature do. He sees that man will sin. So, He comes with plan B. God does the best He can with the cars that He has been dealt with, so in this view, we'll rather have a God who is impotent than a God who is sovereign to all, their, all things. You understand that? So this is view seeks to excuse God, to separate God from the bad things. You now, I have heard preachers who tragedy strikes. to say, "Well, you know, that was the devil. You know, God didn't want that to happen, but the devil that devil. And in doing so, they do ascribe sovereignty to the devil and make him equal with God. Now, Let me let me uh, draw you back to the confession. So it says God has created himself from all eternity by the most wise counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Now listen. Yet, so thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor has God any fellowship with any therein. Nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty, listen, nor yet is the liberty of contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom In disposing all things. In power and faithfulness. In accomplishing his decree. Now. Instead of explaining that. Allow me to put it forth to you. In a a, a biblical example. If you go with me right quick. To Genesis chapter 15 verse 12. Beginning in verse 12. Genesis 15 beginning in verse 12. Now we see it says here, Now the sun was said, And Abraham fell in a deep sleep, And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, That they will be enslaved and mistreated there. Verse 14, but I will punish the nation, they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried of an old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the Son had said, the darkness had fallen, the smoking fire fought, with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Then, in verse 18, says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I will give this land. Now, that's the divine decree. Okay, that's the foreordination. That is the divine decree of God. Now, what I want to bring to our attention is the means by which God brings those things to pass. So, here's what happens. We know that Abraham has a son, named Isaac. He's only uh, the only son of the promise. And then Isaac marries Rebecca. Isaac marries Rebecca and the scripture tells us that Rebecca is barren. Now, uh oh, we got a problem here now. Because we just read the decree, we just read the promise. Right? A sentence and the land is promised to Abraham. Now we have a problem here because now Rebecca is barren. Is the plan of God frustrated by the human agency? That was the question before us. Would it be frustrated? Will, will God have to come up with something to make this happen? Or would not happen because Rebecca is barren? Now it reads Genesis twenty five, twenty one, listen to what it says. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now this goes to that assertion, Well, if God has fixated all things whatsoever, God's supports why even pray? But here we see clearly that it is by the means of the prayer of Isaac, that the purpose of God comes to pass. We move on. Then. Rebecca can see she has twins. We know the story. She has Jacob and Isa. Jacob has 12 sons. 11 of them hates the younger Joseph. They sold him as a slave to Egypt. They hated his brother, their brother. They hated him. They wanted to kill him, but they rather sold the man. They stole them, sent them to Egypt, and Egypt, Joseph comes, he becomes a great man, he's accused of, uh, wanting to, uh, violate the wife of the, of Potiphar, the captain of the guards of Pharaoh, he goes to jail, in jail he meets the baker, and the cupbearer, bearer, and like Arsis Pro says, the stick maker, And then, Joseph interprets dreams to them. And then God gives dreams to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has his dreams. Those dreams, God is revealing what's coming to pass. All right? Then we see that Joseph is remembered by the cupbearer. I met a man in jail that couldn't interpret dreams, so they bring Joseph forth. And Joseph interprets the dream and he becomes the most powerful man in the land. Then what God has pre- uh, preordained and said comes to pass. The famine comes to the land, Joseph saves the grain, and then Joseph's brothers comes to Egypt, and guess who's in charge? We know the story, Joseph confronts them, he brings them to Egypt, he brings his father Jacob to Egypt, and when that happens, Jacob passes away, and then the brothers are afraid, and I will leave you with this. It says that they came to Joseph and said to him, Our father Jacob gave us this command. Go to your brother and tell him to forgive you the servants of the Lord for all the evil they have done to you. What is the answer of Joseph? says, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. The hatred of the brothers, the lies of the 41st wife, all these evil acts were the means that God was using to bring the past but he had decreed in his covenant to Abraham that it was going to pass. Yet without God's city. Now think of these terms. If there is no prayer for Rebecca, there is no Jacob, and there is no hatred of the brothers for Joseph, there is no coming to Egypt. If there is no coming to Egypt, there is no Exodus. And if there is no Exodus, there is no King David. If there is no King David, there is no Messiah. Think of Christ, fully knowing that God had decreed a horrendous death for him. Never dared to raise his hand to say, that's not fair. God does by his own will, freely and unchangeably, by his most wise counsel, decree whatsoever comes to pass. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that in the scripture we can see your divine providence, your absolute sovereignty over all things, that we can draw confidence from this. We thank you, Father, for your kindness and your mercy. We praise you, Lord God, that you are sovereign. And knowing that there is nothing we can do to, to walk away from you. That we rest secure in your hands. That you are almighty. Let us rest in this confidence, Father, this day and every day of our lives. For the glory and majesty of Christ alone, we pray. Amen. Praise God. Thank you.